Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about gender in romance. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Emmett, who recently passed her Viva in New Testament studies. Congratulations, Grace. Thanks, John. Good to be here. And we have Dr. Logan Williams, who a year ago passed his Viva in New Testament studies. How's it going, Logan? Hey, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Beverly Roberts Gaventa, who's Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Baylor University and the author of a number of important studies on Paul, including most recently, When in Romans, An Invitation to Linger with the Gospel According to Paul, published by Baker in 2016. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Gaventa. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about your commentary in the New Testament Library series? I know you've been working on that, I think, for some time. Maybe give us a little bit of an update on when we can expect to see that. But also, perhaps tell us a little bit about what you think will really distinguish your commentary on Romans, perhaps from some other studies that have been done. Well, I'm tempted to quote, uh, I think it was the biographer of Flannery O'Connor who was asked once when her book would appear. And her response was, when it's finished, I'm not finished yet. And I'm a ways from being finished. So I'm not sure. I, I, keep, I keep saying it'll be out at the end of the year. I just don't ever say which year. I've tried not to get rushed, rushed about it. The New Testament library, as, as some of you will know, and some listeners will know, is a kind of mid-range commentary. It does call for a translation which is uh, not as easy as it sounds, and you know, explanation of notes. Uh, but it's not expected to be the sort of reference work, say, that we have in Jewett uh, or in Michael Volter's uh, massive commentary on Romans. And I frankly don't think we need those right now. I think we need something that is more of a reading uh, from beginning to end. And so what I am trying to do is uh, an integrated reading of the letter itself. Uh, that's not to say I haven't learned things from other scholars, but I'm not planning on reciting every disagreement uh, along the way. So I think that may be one distinctive. One of the preoccupations of my reading of Romans is with what scholars refer to as apocalyptic which doesn't mean it's a kind of movie about the end of create, you know, end of the world. It means that it has to do with the revealed and even intrusive character of the gospel. Um, and I'm especially interested in the way Romans traces God's power and the necessity of God's power for salvation and the, um, the odd workings of that power. It doesn't look like what we think power looks like. So that's one preoccupation. Another is, frankly, uh, to try to hear as much as is possible the um, response of the audience or audiences in Rome. I'm interested, and maybe we'll come to this, in Phoebe as a reader and therefore interpreter of the letter. I'll say a little more about that later. And I, I keep trying to tease that out. Um, I'm also interested in the way in which Paul's argument moves forward. 
a lot of work has been done on formal elements of rhetoric that can be found in the letter. I think here of Tom Tobin's excellent work uh, some years ago now. What interests me is the way Paul, I think, entices his, his audience to assume a certain thing and then turns in a slightly different direction. I think the argument is actually at points rather subtle. So those are a couple of things that I find preoccupying as I read the letter, as I work through it. So I hear you saying that uh, when you talk about the apocalyptic character of, of the gospel, you're um, emphasizing its somewhat disruptive character, that it enters as something hoped for, but uh, yet still unexpected or unanticipated in some ways, um, even if there's future expectations and hope involved. So what are the ways in which you see maybe the Gospel of Romans as disrupting expectations? One of the easiest places to see this is with Paul's understanding of what we would call justice or getting what you deserve. Paul lives in a world where people know that one is repaid for what one does. I'm thinking here of Jonathan Linebaugh's excellent work on the wisdom of Solomon and, and Romans, for example. One, one is repaid according to what one does. One gets one's, what one deserves for one's action. And Paul, I think, consistently turns that on its head. Uh, a place where you see this that I think Jonathan doesn't bring out is in Romans 3, where Paul constructs, I think he constructs, this lengthy uh, patina of biblical texts about uh, how no one does what is right. Well, anyone who has read the Psalms he uses or is familiar with Proverbs or really wisdom literature in general knows how this goes. He's going to get to the end and say, well, the good person does such and such. The one who is in control of his speech will say things this way. The right person will do this. Instead, what Paul does is slam the door on that by saying, no one does what is right. In other words, there is for Paul, no one who is uh, in the right with God. And so that in itself, I think, disrupts the order. And then his claim is that God intrudes in Jesus on behalf of what? All. And goes on in chapter five to talk about all of us, you know, addressing himself and the Romans, I think, together as um, unrighteous, ungodly sinners who are weak, you know. So there is a kind of emphasis over and over again on the inability, even the paralysis of the human uh, as distinct from God's uh, intervention in Jesus. That would be one way to catch it. I mean, there, there are lots of others. Staying on the sort of apocalyptic theme and tying in some of your earlier work, um, we get this unusual imagery in uh, middle of Romans 8 to do with birth pains. Um, and I wonder if you could just say a bit about what you think is going on in that section of Romans and also maybe the sort of gender dynamics, um, seeing as we're kind of going to be thinking a bit more about gender in Romans generally. To begin with, I think it's important to frame the second half of Romans 8 as extending, once again, the limits of God's intervention. 
That is to say, God does not simply intervene for those who are perceived to be good, but for all people, thinking about Romans 5 and the, the way in which Christ's uh, obedience overturns and undoes uh, the disobedience of Adam. By the time you get to Romans 8, Paul extends once again the sphere of God's activity. It's not now just us, but it's also all of creation, which I think means everything, everything, everything. There's a lot of dispute about that, of course. And then he uses this imagery, this birth pang imagery, and says uh, that creation is in longing, uh, is in birth pangs, longing for the revealing uh, of the children of God. And we too, I think it's we too along with creation. Again, that's, that's, uh, that's a disputable reading. Um, it's a reading that's subject to argument. But we too are in uh, labor waiting. So here you get this, in a, in a way, it's a fairly standard apocalyptic image uh, of creation itself in longing, in waiting. And it's a quite graphic image. He uses it in other places. He uses other places where he talks about uh, being in labor pains, as in Galatians 4.19. What's interesting to me here is that we, you know, we are in labor, but we actually don't ever have a baby. You know, he doesn't follow through on the image. He twists the image so that it is uh, God who brings about not a new birth, but a re but redemption. Uh, so he changes the language as he goes through the metaphor. This is one of those places, I think there are a number, where our uh, the scholarly inattention to metaphor and the way it works has cost us a lot, in my opinion. You know, we talk about Paul's theology in still rather propositional terms. Even those who work primarily from a narrative framework don't pay, I think, sufficient attention to the way metaphors may may reveal uh, connections that are not otherwise available. Earlier, you had mentioned that you are providing a particular reading of Romans in, in your commentary and thinking about Phoebe as a reader, potentially uh, reading out loud the letter of, of Romans to uh, the Roman churches uh, as kind of like the initial reader, potentially expositor, interpreter. Um, I'm curious, I mean, thinking about you know, how Phoebe reads this part of Romans, you know, and, and other parts of Romans, uh, I'm sure has, has uh, distinct uh, nuances, perhaps if you're imagining her reading this throughout, throughout the course of uh, your, your, your commentary, are there places that really jump out to you? Uh, we want to get to Phoebe in, on, on her own, but other places like this or other places that just really jump out to you as if you're imagining Phoebe as this kind of initial reader of the text? Well, I can think of a couple that have prompted me to uh, wonder. One in particular would be right at 2-1, you know, where she has presumably read through this really quite emphatic argument about 
those people over there, you know, it's notable that they're third person, those people who do this bad thing and the other bad thing, and God has handed them over, and then you get this long list. And then the text is, you are without apology. You know, you're defenseless if, because you're doing the very same things. Now, you can account for that rhetorically. I don't think you can account for the impact it might have on the, on the hearer. Another place that I have a real question about, I would love to see how it was responded to, is at the beginning of Romans 9, where Paul says, you know, I, I'm telling you the truth. I have all this anguish about my, my kinsmen, and he lists all of the assets of Israel. You know, they're the Israelites. They have the adoption and the glory and the promise and so forth. And, and then he says, of them also is the, are the fathers, and from whom is Christ, Kadasarka, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, how did people hear that? You know, there's a, there's a huge debate about how to translate that and what Paul is saying. Is he saying Christ is God? Is he saying something other than that? But to the hearer, I think it's up to the hearer to decide how it's, how it's being perceived. And I think for the hearer, that might be quite a startling statement. Similarly, uh, at the end of Romans 11, you know, having gone through this long discourse about the relationship between God and Israel, God and Israel and the Gentiles and so forth, he concludes again with that vast doxology and amen. Well, in both cases, you know, an amen is meant to elicit an amen. And I wonder, did an amen follow? Or did they all just shake their heads and say, no way, you know, this is, this is not the way we hear the gospel. Those are a couple of places. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think about um, the impact of this letter being read by a voice that isn't Paul's and the nuance that that might bring to certain sections. I wonder if we can talk a bit more about Phoebe and how Paul describes her and some of the issues to do with translating some of those key terms in um, verses one and two, isn't it? Yeah, kind of where you've got to on that. And I guess the sort of the gendered implications that are often bound up with doing that translation work. I think that's a great question. I typically, when I have a new translation or a new commentary on Romans, this is chapter 16 is where I go first. It gives me an early clue what I'm dealing with. Paul calls Phoebe uh, a diakonos. And you know, just a chapter before that, beginning of chapter 15, or not the beginning of chapter 15, but in 15, seven, eight, he says Christ was a diakonos. And back in 11, he refers to his own diakonia. Now, I, I can't verify this off the top of my head, but when Phoebe is called a diakonos, it is often said that she's a servant. And people will rush in to say, we don't know what these roles looked like, you know, in the first communities. That's fine. Uh, it is, I mean, it's fine to say, we don't know what these roles look like. They may not have been specific offices. But then I want the same thing said elsewhere in the New Testament where those terms have used, are used of men. So I translate it simply as deacon. 
I think it may not have been an official role. They didn't have official roles at this point. So that's kind of a question begging strategy there. But I do think she is somehow a, um, a recognized uh, leader of this community at the port city uh, of Corinth, where Paul is at the moment. I translate diakonos there as deacon as well. And one time I had a student kind of say that I was sweetening the pot by not calling Phoebe a deaconess. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, speak into that for us. Well, I can understand why a student would ask the question, but there are a couple of things. One is there is no such Greek word at this period. That's the best answer. The other is, you know, I don't want to be called an authoress either. Uh, it's the same work. And once we call them different names, then we tend to discredit. And also a deaconess in modern church life tends to be exactly the kind of role restriction that people have wanted to place on her. And there's nothing in the text that indicates that she's restricted by her gender. It's important to notice that she has another title in here. She's also called a prostatus which again is sometimes translated as helper, and that's not wrong, but it's also not right. A prostatus in Paul's period would have been uh, someone who lent a certain kind of very concrete support to the work Paul is up to, uh, and not just Paul, to, he's, uh, he says to many as well as to myself. Prostatus probably means she is a financial uh, benefactor in some way, just like the women in Luke 8 are uh, the supporters, the, the uh, supporters of Jesus's ministry. Whether I, when I say financial, I don't really mean just, you know, she wrote a check, but she helped to procure what was needed. She helped to make space uh, for the work. This probably suggests that she is a person of some means. The fact that there's no man mentioned alongside her almost certainly means that she is on her own, whether she is uh, unmarried or uh, widowed. She does not seem to have to be paired with a man in order to do this work. Just to get behind the text for a moment, there are a few things that are kind of suggestive here. For example, Phoebe's mentioned first in the list. She's also carrying the letter. Um, what does this? What kind of situation does this suppose? Why is she going to Rome? What kind of activities as a letter carrier would she be involved in? You know, what's her relationship with Paul? Um, any hypotheses you have about these topics? What might they be? Well, I think most scholars would agree that she is taking the letter to Rome. Uh, there was no reliable mail delivery service, you know, unless you were the emperor, I guess. Uh, but Paul had to send the letter by someone. And, you know, we have no idea whether she already had was going to Rome on business or whether she goes entirely in order to further the work of Paul. When she is there with the letter, I think it is entirely reasonable, and here again, I think many New Testament scholars would agree, that she is the one who reads the letter. There's been some pushback uh, against that with the, the notion that 
women couldn't read. Uh, well, not many people in the first century could read, but Phoebe seems to be exactly the kind of woman who could. So if we assume, as I do, that there is not a Roman congregation, but there are a number of Roman congregations, she probably goes to each of them and introduces the letter and reads it. Now, I want to push that just a little bit further to suggest that when she reads the letter, she is interpreting it. You can't read something aloud without interpreting it. You just, you can't do it. And anybody who thinks so should go compare Fox News and MSNBC and tell me that reading doesn't matter, right? Okay. So not only does she read the letter, she is interpreting it. Even if somebody else is reading the letter, let's say she has a slave with her who is a qualified reader, then she is the one who's there to represent Paul to talk about the letter. So again, she interprets the letter. And then I want to push it just one little bit more. We still treat Paul, and I'm as guilty as anyone, as the great man who sat and had thoughts about the Christian movement and thought about how to, to treat the churches and how to build them up and so forth and so on. But it's pretty clear that as Paul developed this letter, any letter, he was in Corinth, we know that. It's pretty clear that he must have reworked it several times. This is not a letter that came straight off of the top of his head. I imagine him sitting alongside others and talking about it, perhaps even having people read parts of it. I don't think it's crazy to imagine that Phoebe and other people may have had a role in shaping the letter. I don't often speak of it that way. I don't say Paul and his buddies wrote the letter this way. But I think it's entirely realistic to suppose that this is not the work of a solitary genius sitting by himself. People didn't have that kind of luxury, and Paul certainly didn't have that luxury. Some of us right now would love to sit in a room with someone else and think about, (laughs) talk about things, right? Yeah. And we know at least one person was certainly involved in the process, Tertius, as as he's named uh, later in this chapter as well. Right. It's not unlike the way we think about Paul in relationship to women. The way we think about Paul as a loner or a communal thinker will depend a lot on where we start reading the letters. If we started reading with 1 Thessalonians, where you get all of that mutuality language, you know, we would think of Paul much less as the kind of, for want of a better expression, lone wolf, and much more as a collaborative worker. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for thinking about Paul as a sort of person and not this kind of disembodied mind who's just kind of manufacturing letters that kind of make their way across the Mediterranean, but actually imagining him as, an, as a person. And I read this um, fascinating essay recently, kind of imagining what the performance of Romans by Phoebe does for Paul's sort of masculinity in the eyes of the Romans. And I wonder if you just got any thoughts about that, kind of beyond, I suppose, the letter's content, what does it do for reflecting on Paul? Um, if Phoebe is the letter reader, maybe it's somebody else. But what does it do that somebody else is actually reading that for him and the way that he then comes across to the churches there? Obviously, that's a question that lies much in our imaginations. But I have thought about it, and I would love to know how it impacts the hearing 
of this letter. Now, if Phoebe is, in fact, a rather well-to-do person, she's certainly an independent person, she may be received with a certain kind of authority. You know, authority is so uh, flexible when it comes to all of these matters, whether it's gender or anything else. But I do wonder whether Paul himself would have been perceived as somehow compromised by her presence. On the other hand, maybe he gets a better hearing because she is a person of some status, and he may be to some people a person whose whose views and whose work heretofore are questionable, so that she may open the door for him in ways that we haven't thought about. So the next named person in Romans 16 is Prisca. She's mentioned with Aquila, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about uh, Prisca and the significance that that she has there at the end of Romans. Well, Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla, as she's named some places, and Aquila, appear both here and in 1 Corinthians 16 and in the book of Acts. And it's notable that uh, here she is named first. And twice uh, in, in other places, she is also named first, not always, but sometimes she is named first, which I think probably suggests some kind of priority. It was not normal to name a woman first. You would typically name the male partner first. So the fact that she is named first has led some people to think that there's a status difference between them. Perhaps she is a freeborn person and he is a freedman. It could be that she is more prominent in Paul's circles. Uh, as far as he is concerned, she is the more prominent Christian leader. But certainly Paul identifies them as fellow workers, both of them, which suggests uh, that he regards them as leaders. I mean, this is a, a terminology he uses for what we call apostolic labor. So when he applies it to a man and a woman without differentiation, I don't think we can say, aha, well, Aquila taught the men's class and Priscilla must have been in the kitchen or she was with the kindergarten, right? There's, there's nothing in here that supports that kind of a distinction. So the next controversial matter that comes up often in Romans 16 or in discussions of Romans 16 uh, is the name Unia. Some translations of the name Unia in Greek say Junia, and some say Junius. So what are your thoughts on this issue? This is a fascinating issue. If you look at English translations, as you say, contemporary translations, some still read Junius. More recent ones often read Junia. The difference is Junius is a male name. Junia is a female name. As you know, in Greek, in the accusative case, Paul has greeted Junius or Junia in the, in the accusative. Those two forms are indistinguishable. The only way you can distinguish is by means of an accent mark, and there is no accent mark present in these early manuscripts. So how do we make this determination? Well, we might look at the way interpreters in the church, church's history treated it. Up until at least the 13th century, 
So far as we can tell, it was assumed that this was a woman and her name was Junia. Further, people who study name usage in this period find that there is ample evidence for women by the name of Junia and virtually none for men by the name of Junius. So those two things taken together seem to make it pretty clear that we are dealing here with a female rather than a male. And of course, the reason why anybody would be promoting the idea that maybe it's a masculine name is because of what Paul goes on to say. And that itself has its own kind of contested interpretative issue that maybe you could unpack for us. But depending on how you translate it, it sounds like he could be saying that this person, Junia Junius, might be an, an apostle. And of course, there's all kinds of political issues that immediately rise to the surface about whether Paul would call a woman an apostle. Could you unpack some of this for us? Sure. The, the next phrase is the somewhat ambiguous uh, in, literally, in the apostles. Does that mean by the apostles they are well regarded by the apostles, or does that mean among the apostles? Now, people who have spent a great deal of time looking at the evidence for the way for that phrase elsewhere differ about this, and I'm not sure those searches are ever going to convince people who have already taken a side. What I did find persuasive was a recent article by Yi Jan Lin at uh, Yale in the Journal of Biblical Literature, where she points out that Paul is not given to saying people are approved or honored or not by the apostles. That's a very strange thing for him to say, especially given his own tenuous relationship with some other apostles. This seems to me to be sort of the strongest argument that it really does mean among the apostles, both uh, Andronicus and Junia have standing. Now, does that mean Paul thought that, you know, Junia was one of the 12? Well, Paul has a notion of the 12. He refers to the 12 in 1 Corinthians 15. But he also uses the term apostolos outside the 12. If he didn't, he couldn't call himself an apostolos. So I see no reason for thinking that she is not regarded by Paul as an apostle, right along with Andronicus. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it seems like Junius kind of is now in most mainstream translations. But as you say, that kind of clause that comes afterwards to do with kind of the apostle bit. Um, is what sort of qualifies her status. Um, so it's interesting how translations sort of, I guess, get around that if they're maybe uncomfortable with the idea that Junior is, is being promoted as an apostle. I've got the ESV open in front of me, uh, which says, says they're well known to the apostles. So there's not a sense in which that's a reflection of her status, just she's somebody that is known. And obviously this is really contested because of broad issues to do with women's leadership and things like that. I wonder if you could comment on kind of what you think drives and what's at stake often in these interpretive decisions. Well, one way to think about that is to look at the history of translation. Interestingly, the King James refers to her as Junia and seems to open the possibility that she is an apostle. And that is followed up until the late 19th century. 
I have a hunch that if the history of interpretation is ever pursued on this question, what we'll find is that it's correlated with a backlash against the suffragette movement. I mean, that's, that's a wild hunch, but it is interesting to see how at the end of the 20th, 19th century, there is this rather dramatic change. It is also correlated with a statement in Leitzmann's commentary in the early 20th century, where he says that the name might be Junia, might be female, but because of what's said afterward, it must be a man. So you have your presuppositions driving the argument. I do think that it matters a great deal, again, where we start with Paul. If we start with Paul and the question of women in particular, if we start with the pastorals, if we start with you know, the clobber text, the pastorals, the end of 1 Corinthians 14, then what we end up with is, well, she couldn't possibly be a woman. And if she's a woman, she couldn't possibly be an apostle. Recently, I've even seen the argument that, well, she was a woman, she was an apostle, but because of Timothy, she must have been at work only with children or only with women. She couldn't have been at work with men. So was this in an academic publication? Yes. Oh, my. Woo. This is one of those places where we have to admit we are simply not objective. And anybody who still thinks that, that you know, they or somehow their community is immune from bias in this respect is simply kidding themselves. We don't like to talk about it because subjectivity suggests somehow that there's no final, final, final answer. I think instead subjectivity is an invitation to us to re-examine our own biases and to learn from others, even people with whom we greatly disagree on topics like this. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gaventa. This has been a wonderful conversation. We just appreciate having you on and walking through some of these interesting aspects of the text of Romans, especially the prominent women mentioned there at the end in chapter 16. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more engagement of theology, culture, and discipleship from the two cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.